Section twenty three of History of Egypt, Volume two by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter two The Memphite Empire, Part eleven. It was surrounded with walls, and a fortress of sun dried brick perched upon a neighboring island to the southwest gave it complete command over the passages of the cataract. An arm of the river ninety yards wide separated it from Suanit, whose closely built habitations were ranged along the steep bank and formed, as it were, a suburb. Marshy pasturages occupied the modern site of Syene. Beyond these were gardens, vines, furnishing wine, celebrated throughout the whole of Egypt, and a forest of date-palms running towards the north along the banks of the stream. The princes of the nome of Nubia encamped here, so to speak, as frontier posts of civilization, and maintained frequent but variable relations with the people of the desert. It gave the former no trouble to throw, as occasion demanded it, bodies of troops on the right or left sides of the valley, in the direction of the Red Sea, or in that of the Oasis, however little they might carry away on their raids, of oxen, slaves, wood, charcoal, gold dust, amethysts, cornelian or green feldspar for the manufacture of ornaments. It was always so much to the good, and the treasury of the prince profited by it. They never went very far in their expeditions. If they desired to strike a blow at a distance, to reach, for example, those regions of Puanit, of whose riches the barbarians were wont to boast, the aridity of the district around the second cataract would arrest the advance of their foot-soldiers, while the rapids of Wadi Haifa would offer an almost impassable barrier to their ships. In such distant operations they did not have recourse to arms, but disguised themselves as peaceful merchants. An easy road led almost direct from their capital to Rasbanat, which they called the head of Nekhabit, on the Red Sea, arrived at the spot where in later times stood one of the numerous Berenices, and having quickly put together a boat from the wood of the neighboring forest, they made voyages along the coast, as far as the Sinaitic Peninsula, and the Hiru Shaitu on the north, as well as to the land of Puanit itself on the south. The small size of these improvised vessels rendered such expeditions dangerous, while it limited their gain, they preferred, therefore, for the most part, the land journey. It was fatiguing and interminable. Donkeys, the only beast of burden they were acquainted with, or at least employed, could make but short stages, and they spent months upon months in passing through countries which a caravan of camels would now traverse in a few weeks. The roads upon which they ventured were those which, owing to the necessity for the frequent watering of the donkeys, and the impossibility of carrying with them adequate supplies of water, were marked out at frequent intervals by wells and springs, and were therefore necessarily of a torturous and devious character. Their choice of objects for barter was determined by the smallness of their bulk and weight in comparison with their value. The Egyptians on the one side were provided with stocks of beads, ornaments, coarse cutlery, strong perfumes, and rolls of whiter-colored cloth, which after the lapse of thirty-five centuries are objects still coveted by the peoples of Africa. The aborigines paid for these articles of small value, in gold, either in dust or in bars, in ostrich feathers, lions and leopards' skins, elephants' tusks, cowrie shells, billets of ebony, incense, and gum Arabic. Considerable value was attached to cynocephaly and green monkeys, with which the kings or the nobles amused themselves, and which they were accustomed to fasten to the legs of their chairs on days of solemn reception. But the dwarf, the danga, was the rare commodity which was always in demand, but hardly ever attainable. 
Partly by commerce and partly by pillage, the lords of Elephantine became rapidly wealthy, and began to play an important part among the nobles of the Said. They were soon obliged to take serious precautions against the cupidity which their wealth excited among the tribes of Conusit. They entrenched themselves behind a wall of sun-dried brick, some seven and a half miles long, of which the ruins are still an object of wonder to the traveller. It was flanked towards the north by the ramparts of Syene, and followed pretty regularly the lower course of the valley to its abutment at the port of Mahada, opposite Philas. Guards distributed along it, kept an eye upon the mountain, and uttered a call to arms when the enemy came within sight. Beyond this bulwark the population felt quite at ease, and could work without fear at the granite quarries on behalf of the pharaoh, or pursue in security their callings of fishermen and sailors. The inhabitants of the village of Satit and of the neighboring islands claimed from earliest times the privilege of piloting the ships, which went up and down the rapids, and of keeping clear the passages which were used for navigation. They worked under the protection of their goddesses Anukit and Satit. Travellers of position were accustomed to sacrifice in the temple of the goddesses at Sahel, and to cut on the rock votive inscriptions in their honour, in gratitude for the prosperous voyage accorded them. We meet their scrawls on every side, at the entrance and exit of the cataract, and on the small islands where they moored their boats at nightfall, during the four or five days required for the passage. The bank of the stream between Elephantine and Philae is, as it were, an immense visitor's book, in which every generation of ancient Egypt has in turn inscribed itself. The markets and streets of the Twin Cities must have presented at that time the same motley blending of types and costumes which we might have found some years back in the bazaars of modern Syene. Nubians, Negroes of the Sudan, perhaps people from southern Arabia, jostled there with Libyans and Egyptians of the Delta. What the princes did to make the sojourn of strangers agreeable, what temples they consecrated to their god Knumu and his companions, in gratitude for the good things he had bestowed upon them, we have no means of knowing up to the present. Elephantine and Syene have preserved for us nothing of their ancient edifices, but the tombs which they have left tell us their history. They honeycomb in long lines the sides of the steep hill which looks down upon the whole extent of the left bank of the Nile, opposite the narrow channel of the port of Aswan. A rude flight of stone steps led from the bank to the level of the sepulchres. The mummy, having been carried slowly on the soldiers of the bearers to the platform, was deposited for a moment at the entrance of the chapel. The decoration of the latter was rather meagre, and was distinguished neither by the delicacy of its execution nor by the variety of the subjects. More care was bestowed upon the exterior, and upon the walls on each side of the door, which could be seen from the river or from the streets of Elephantine. An inscription borders the recesses, and boasts to every visitor of the character of the occupant. The portrait of the deceased, and sometimes that of his son, stand to the right and left. The scenes devoted to the offerings come next, when an artist of sufficient skill could be found to engrave them. The expeditions of the lords of Elephantine, crowned as they frequently were with success, soon attracted the attention of the pharaohs. Metasophus deigned to receive in person at the cataract the homage of the chiefs of the Uaite and Iratite, and of the Mazau during the early days of the fifth year of his reign. The most celebrated caravan guide at this time was Herku, own cousin to Mikhu, prince of Elephantine. He had entered upon office under the auspices of his father Eri, the sole friend, a king whose name he does not mention, but who was perhaps Unas, more probably Papi I, dispatched them both to the country of the Amamite. 
the voyage occupied seven months and was extraordinarily successful the sovereign encouraged by this unexpected good fortune resolved to send out a fresh expedition here kuf had the sole command of it he made his way through iritit explored the districts of satir and daros and retraced his steps after an absence of eight months he brought back with him a quantity of valuable commodities the like of which no one had ever previously brought back he was not inclined to regain his country by the ordinary route he pushed boldly into the narrow wadis which furrowed the territory of the people of Iritit, and emerged upon the region of Situ, in the neighborhood of the cataract, by paths in which no official traveller who had visited the Amamit had, up to this time, dared to travel. A third expedition, which started a few years later, brought him into regions still less frequented. It set out by the oasis route, proceeded towards the Amamit, and found the country in an uproar. The sheikhs had convoked their tribes, and were making preparations to attack the Timihu towards the west corner of the heaven, in that region where stand the pillars which support the iron firmament at the setting sun. The Timihu were probably Berbers by race and language. Their tribes, coming from beyond the Sahara, wandered across the frightful solitudes which bound the Nile Valley on the west. The Egyptians had constantly to keep a sharp lookout for them, and to take precautions against their incursions having for a long time acted only on the defensive they at length took the offensive and decided not without religious misgivings to pursue them to their retreats as the inhabitants of mendes and of busiris had relegated the abode of their departed to the recesses of the impenetrable marshes of the delta so those of siut and thinis had at first believed the souls of the deceased sought a home beyond the sands the god jackal anubis acted as their guide through the gorge of the cleft or through the gate of the oven, to the green islands scattered over the desert, where the blessed dwelt in peace at a convenient distance from their native cities and their tombs. They constituted, as we know, a singular folk, those Uiti, whose members dwelt in coffins, and who had put on the swaddling clothes of the dead. The Egyptians called the oasis which they had colonized the land of the shrouded, or of mummies, Uit and the name continued to designate it long after the advance of geographical knowledge had removed this paradise further towards the west. The oases fell one after the other into the hands of frontier princes, that of Banesa coming under the dominion of the lord of Oxyrhynchus, that of Dakhel under the lords of Thinis. The Nubians of Amamid had relations, probably, with the Timihu, who owned the oasis of Dush, a prolongation of that of Dakhil, on the parallel of Elephantine. Herkhuf accompanied the expedition to the Amamit, succeeded in establishing peace among the rival tribes, and persuaded them to worship all the gods of Pharaoh. He afterwards reconciled the Iritit, Amamit, and Uaiit, who lived in a state of perpetual hostility to each other, explored their valleys, and collected from them such quantities of incense, ebony, ivory, and skins, that three hundred asses were required for their transport." He was even fortunate enough to acquire a danga from the land of ghosts, resembling the one brought from Puanit by Beardidi in the reign of Asi eighty years before. Metasophus, in the meantime, had died, and his young brother and successor, Papi II, had already been a year upon the throne. The new king, delighted to possess a dwarf who could perform the dance of the god, addressed a rescript to Herkuf to express his satisfaction. At the same time he sent him a special messenger, Uni, a distant relative to Papi I's minister, who was to invite him to come and give an account of his expedition. 
The boat in which the explorer embarked to go down to Memphis also brought the Danga, and from that moment the latter became the most important personage of the party. For him all the royal officials, lords, and sacerdotal colleges hastened to prepare provisions and means of conveyance. His health was of greater importance than that of his protector, and he was anxiously watched lest he should escape. When he is with thee in the boat, let there be cautious persons about him, lest he should fall into the water. When he rests during the night, let careful people sleep beside him, in case of his escaping quickly in the night-time. For my majesty desires to see this dwarf more than all the treasures which are being imported from the land of Puanit. Herkuf, on his return to Elephantine, engraved the royal letter and the detailed account of his journeys to the lands of the south on the facade of his tomb. End of section 23. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audio books or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.